so much of U.S. capitalism has been sort of extended into Mexico, the Caribbean, and Central America, that much of the economies of, of these countries in this region are directly linked or connected to or, or, or transplanted U.S. capital uh, investments. And so it's created this very interesting phenomenon where not only do we have lots of migrants from these countries working inside the United States across all, you know, virtually all industries, but we also have workers across borders working in the same sort of production chain, the same assembly lines. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Welcome to Savage Life, where we attempt thoughtful conversations in the project of understanding the world and turning it upside down. I'm your host, Annie Olaloku-Tariba. Savage Live is brought to you by Haymarket Books and Savage, a journal of revolutionary arts and letters. Two images dominated news cycles last week. On the one hand, at the US-Mexico um, at the US-Mexico border, guards whipping and pushing Haitian migrants into the Rio Grande River on the other, hour-long queues in Britain for the chance to buy some of the fuel, which was rapidly disappearing from fuel stations around the country. Both were seized upon by liberals. In America, Haitians emerged as helpless refugees in need of protection from the same U.S. whose ongoing imperialist aggression and backing of corporate land grabs and election rigging contributed immeasurably to the, uh, to the dangers they were fleeing. The immediate crisis of a magnitude 7.2 earthquake overshadowed the countless injustices which eroded the Haitian state's capacity to mount an effective response to it. In Britain, we were reminded that the migrant is vital insofar as their labour is required. Companies called on the government to relax visa requirements for HGV uh, drivers to tackle the looming logistics crisis. Newspapers published spreads aghast that the few lorry drivers left in the UK were being asked by companies to name their price, with some being offered more than central office executives. The government responded with emergency visas, which would send these drivers back as soon as the last Christmas turkey was delivered. By that time, Christmas would be saved and lorry drivers would be pushed back down the pay scale. Contrary to liberal beliefs that the state needs the skills of specific migrants, um, um, sorry, contrary to liberal beliefs that the state needs the skills of specific migrants does not make the virulent anti-migrant sentiment which activates uh, which it activates through dog whistles ironic. The sentiment is a crucial tool in priming the so-called economic migrant for precarity and hyperexploitation. Against this scene, it seems an appropriate time to go back to basics and to push beyond received wisdom about borders and migration. And today I am joined by two incredible guests who will help me do just that. Chloe Haralambus organizes with Sea Watch and has conducted migrant rescue missions by both sea and air. She also helped found Mosaic Support Center for Refugees and Locals in Greece, where she's from. And she's currently writing her PhD at Columbia University. 
Justin Akers Chacon is an activist, labor unionist, and uh, educator living in the San Diego Tijuana border region. He is a professor of Chicano history at San Diego City College. Welcome to both of my guests. So the structure of today's event is going to take the form of two individual conversations between myself and Chloe and then myself and Justin, and then we'll join each other for a group discussion towards the end. And at that point, we will be taking questions from the audience. So I'm going to start with Chloe. Hi, Chloe, and welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, I'm super excited to be here. Amazing. Um, So I'm going to start with an open and potentially complex question, which is, what is Fortress Europe? Uh, yeah, that is uh, a really complex question um, because, okay, Fortress Europe is a political geography and so a spatial arrangement of various political, economic, technological, and ideological interests, which is to say everything and nothing. And I guess one way to kind of approach it at kind of an angle is to say, is to ask, where is Fortress Europe? Um, So on one level, this is obvious, Fortress Europe is a border. Um, But even that statement is not as simple as it might seem, because part of the function of Fortress Europe is to perpetually redefine that border by shifting it. And that shift is itself overdetermined um, by a set of specific political histories and dynamics. So to be more concrete, for the purpose of migration control, the borders of Europe are often outside Europe, um, not only in the Aegean and the Central Mediterranean seas, but further in Turkey to the east and Niger, Senegal, Ghana, and most importantly, Libya in the south. So these are the countries uh, with which the EU has what we call border externalization agreements, uh, by which they fund them to conduct the work of border control. Um, And because, as maybe we'll discuss later with some specific examples from Sea-Watch, in order for for Europe to shield its borders from migrants, someone has to break the law. There is no really legal way to do it. And so these third-party agreements involve shifting the responsibility for those rights violations, most obviously the Geneva Convention for Refugees, onto non-EU states. So in other words, in order for Europe to keep both its borders and its humanitarian principles or human rights record or whatever intact, it relies on former European colonies to brutally police and control other formerly colonized people. So Fortress Europe is a new colonial arrangement in many ways, but this is one of them. Um, And I actually recently found out that um, the first border externalization agreement between Italy and Libya, between Berlusconi and Gaddafi of 2008, um, replaced a previous procedure by which Libya was um, petitioning, um, was demanding colonial reparations from Italy. So rather than doing that work of colonial reparations, um, that became kind of sidelined and taken over instead by this work of outsourcing border control, which is about repression, uh, repressing. So the border moves outwards, but Fortress Europe is also an instrument of kind of regional hierarchical variegation within Europe. Um, when those agreements with third countries don't turn out because sometimes uh, these countries don't really want to do the EU's bidding for a series of very understandable um, reasons. So usually what happens then is that the poorer countries on the periphery of Europe do the work of the formerly uh, formally assigned to the ex-colonies. So in order for Germany, for instance, to be the citadel of enlightenment, Greece and the countries of the Western Balkans need to be breaking international law and violently deflecting or deporting asylum seekers. 
And there are incentives to do that. So, for instance, for the Western Balkans, uh, the prospect of EU accession or Schengen accession. So it's something that is very much endorsed, even as then there's a kind of responsibility laundering that happens between the EU and individual member states and usually mediated by Frontex, which is the EU's border guard. So that part is the geography of it. So of where is Fortress Europe? Uh, and then obviously there is the other question of what does Fortress Europe do? Um, how does it work? So Fortress Europe also denotes uh, a kind of apparatus that mediates or creates compromises between the political interests of a liberal establishment of the far right and crucially the interests of capital. So I think we'll go into this more with Justin uh, especially, but for now, I guess it's important to stress that on the one hand, the border serves the function of containment. Um, and this includes systems of ghettoization such as the camps. But the border is also porous. It has holes. And that's not necessarily a design malfunction. It is designed to let some people through. And that is what makes it productive. The border is an instrument of differentiation of class, race, gender. And that produces certain people as hyper exploitable subjects. Um, so in that sense, the border is something that brands people who cross it, especially if they do so in a legalized way and which follows them long after they've actually crossed the border line. It shapes where they live, how and where they move and crucially how they work. Um, I'm going to stop now, but I made one more note, which is that. Um, so one final thing that this certainly doesn't exhaust the explanation of what Fortress Europe is, is that Fortress Europe is an intellectual project. Um, in several ways, but in one is that it treats migration as a technical matter. Um, and so has developed a vast apparatus of technology, notably systems of surveillance in drones, aircraft, ship, uh, ship sensors, fingerprinting databases like Eurodac, all of which amounts to the fact that Fortress Europe is in and of itself a massive industry um, in which the EU, individual member states and many private companies are huge stakeholders. Um, and finally, part of that industry is perhaps counterintuitively uh, the humanitarian apparatus so, that often claims to op oppose Fortress Europe, even as it is necessary to its functioning. And here I'm not talking about smaller so-called radical NGOs like Z-Watch or Open Arms, which maybe we can talk about later, but bigger players like UNHCR or the IOM. Um, were also funded by the EU. So Fortress Europe is also this kind of paradoxical thing that allows, um, that can kind of couch the conflicts that are involved in it. So for instance, the humanitarian apparatus that is opposing Fortress Europe is funded and kind of owned by the same people who run and own Fortress Europe. Um, so I guess I've, I've rambled for a bit, so I'll, I'll stop there and let you get a word in. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Um, I really want to delve into some of the really interesting ways that you're thinking about Fortress Europe conceptually. Um, but before we go into that, I was kind of um, interested to know, well, what is the significance, uh, for example, that Europe's border is by and large a sea border? What is its significance? Well, that depends on which sea border you're working on. Um, in terms of the Aegean crossing, it doesn't make that much of a difference because the crossing between, for instance, Lesbos, where I'm from, and Turkey is five miles. Um, in the case of the Central Mediterranean crossing, obviously it makes a huge difference because it means that 
Um, you have more opportunities to con to create the ideal conditions in which people can die rather than make it to Europe um, and in which people can be deflected uh, at the cost of really enormous human rights violations um, without anybody really knowing. Um, actually, I'm not I'm not sure that that is the case, because I think that at this point, everybody knows. Um, so um, and we need to be kind of realistic about that. So I think that um, materially how this works is that. Um, the EU um, packs a lot of funding, uh, resources, uh, training, HR, surveillance into the so-called Libyan Coast Guard, which was conjured uh, out of nothing. It was the only kind of there was a joke that it, for a while that it was the only functioning state institution of Libya um, because it was created by the EU out of former militias. So you often have situations where uh, the so-called Libyan Coast Guard uh, is, in fact, run by the same people who were smuggling the migrants yesterday. Um, so the way that it works is that um, Frontex, which is the European border agency, um, something that was created in 2004, funded founded by the EU uh, for the purpose of external border policing, but at the time had a budget of 7 million um, euro and now has a budget of 11.6 billion. Um, they use um, planes and uh, recently drones uh, to police the Central Mediterranean Passage. The imagery is live streamed to Warsaw, which is where Frontex has its headquarters. And then on the basis of um, the processing of that imaging, it's sent to, instructions are sent to the Libyan Coast Guard, basically, so that the Libyan Coast Guard can then launch their ships and go and intercept um, people who are trying to cross. And we call these pushbacks by proxy. Basically what it means is simply that the EU does all of the work necessary um, in order to arrange for the interception. Um, but since they are not the ones who are materially taking the people on board their ships, they can still claim that they did not technically do it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that is basically how the border works in the Mediterranean. And you can do this a lot more um, if there's nobody watching. Um, and yeah, so that that is that is how the EU basically profits off of the fact that the main avenue for people is 176 kilometers of sea. Mm. Absolutely. And I think um, this would be an interesting time to kind of think about some of the work that you've done with uh, with Sea-Watch and other organizations. Um, and I guess the question then is, could you give us some kind of cases or examples that you've encountered and what lessons they offer, offer us? Um, yeah, so... Part of what happened um, with the Italy-Libya deal was that in order for the deal to work, the Mediterranean had to be drained of all state assets. Because if a migrant at sea encounters a European asset and is taken on board that ship, they have effectively entered European territory and so cannot be returned. And the result of that, in order to avoid that encounter at sea, the EU pulled all of its state assets. So all of its patrol ships, all of its naval assets, basically everyone moved northwards so that the Libyan Coast Guard could advance northwards and so conduct interceptions further and further um, into, for instance, the Maltese search and rescue zone, uh, which is not in their jurisdiction. But anyway, um, so... But of course, they couldn't simply kind of drain it of surveillance. So what you saw was a kind of shift of the border apparatus, which is now still getting elaborated from the sea to the sky. 
So where Europe divested from naval assets, they invested very heavily in uh, private companies, actually a British one, uh, Diamond Diamond Enterprise Aviation. They are the kind of the big players. Um of organizing the surveillance missions of Frontex. So they pulled uh, all of their resources to the sky um, in order to then have this kind of surveillance mechanism that then could provide information to the Libyan Coast Guard to conduct the interceptions. So, so in the middle of this, what happens is that there's no ships in the Mediterranean. So if you have a um, distress case, the only people who would be left are the merchant fleet or NGOs. As part of this effort to drain the Mediterranean, Italy began a very protracted campaign to criminalize the work of search and rescue in order to seize civilian ships and keep them in port, largely using anti-mafia and anti-terror legislation. Um, And that left the commercial ships, uh, the merchant navy, and um, Sea Watch's aircraft. So what you see is that people who are at sea basically don't really have any options left because either they are intercepted and returned by the Libyan Coast Guard or they try to make it to Lampedusa, which almost never happens, right? Lampedusa is 176 kilometers away from the Libyan shoreline, more or less, uh, depending on where you launch from. And people don't, most of the boats that people travel in are not seaworthy. And so it's very unlikely that they will make it to Lampedusa on their own steam or that leaves uh, the commercial fleet. And so with Moonbird, which is our aircraft, what we try to do is try to pressure the merchant fleet to intervene because those are the highest chances that people have of boarding a European ship, which is technically a guarantee of them being brought to Europe. In practice, this doesn't often work out. Um, Now, how European states adapted to that was they um, essentially made it impossible for cargo ships, carriers, the merchant fleet to enter port once they had conducted a rescue. Um, one case that we had of this was um, one boat of 27 people um, that we had cited. I was uh, I was coordinating the mission. We cited this boat of 27 people. What usually happens is that if there's a merchant ship there, you try to press to pressure the merchant ship, and the captain says no uh, because they themselves are under incredible pressure from their company. Um, not to conduct the rescue, which would involve enormous losses to cargo and carrier. Um, in an unusual turn, it just so happened that the commander of this ship, the Maersk Etienne, right, which is run by the biggest shipping company, Maersk, um, used to work at a maritime rescue coordination center in uh, Odessa. So he turned around the ship. It never happens, right, that a captain just like hears there are people in distress, even though it should be obvious, right, every sailor is hardwired to do that. It almost never happens that they turn around. But this guy turned around um, and he went and he rescued the people. Um, It was technically in the Maltese search and rescue zone. And so it was Malta's responsibility to coordinate people's disembarkation in a port of safety, which would have been the port of La Valletta. Um, But they decided that they would not take responsibility for that. And instead, what happened was that the Merskatien spent 35 days in standoff uh, offshore Malta because no port would let them in. Mm. Um, And so this is the kind of like very hostile environment that is created in the Mediterranean where um, people, even if they stand a chance of making it because they're not intercepted or they don't drown, um, their only chance lies in the goodwill um, 
the idea that the possibility that the merchant navy will do what they're illegally obligated to do, but don't do not because they're assholes necessarily, but because if they if they if they do do it, then they won't have a port for 35 days. And that not only causes enormous losses to cargo and carrier um, and so kind of is one instance of the way in which a kind of less discussed way of the way in which migration reshapes the circulation of capital in the Mediterranean, but also to the crew. Um, the crew who then have to spend 35 more days offshore. Um, so I guess that's that's one example. I mean, one that I that I like about um, from Sea Watch that I think is useful. Absolutely. And you you talked earlier uh, in that you talked about this concept of relying having migrants having to rely on goodwill. Um, and I think that kind of speaks to something you've written about, which is the kind of rise of humanitarian languages um, in thinking about migration. Um, so could you tell us something about your argument there? Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a couple of things. Um, I don't I don't know which one you're referring to. Uh, it's uh, <laughs> so there's, OK, so there's no, 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 I think I can do both. Um, <laughs> So I think that there's there's two there's two kinds of rise in humanitarian language that interested me. Um, one of them uh, kind of speaks to perhaps an earlier phase, which is the 2015-16 summer of migration, and the other one has perhaps more enduring relevance, which is the mobilization of humanitarian language, both by the liberal establishment, which is fine that it was designed for them. Um, and by them, and more counterintuitively, um, the radical left. So the adoption of radical of humanitarianism as a kind of language of mobilization for the radical left, um, to which it had previously been kind of extraneous and, and kind of puzzling. Um, so one of the ways that um, the human the rise of the humanitarian imaginary happened in Europe. Um, not that it didn't exist before, but it had like a real boom uh, around 2015 and 16, which was during the so-called refugee crisis, um, where that humanitarianism was kind of instrumental to uh, this image of Europe as this citadel of enlightenment, especially at a moment in which the idea of Europe as a kind of political or fiscal union was very much on the rocks so in terms of the relationship between the North and the South and austerity. Um, so you have this triumph of uh, humanitarianism and in particular the refugee as this kind of poster child of a liberal enlightened Europe, um, which then quickly kind of translated into a tool of differentiation, which returns us to the point that like the border is productive because it differentiates uh, between refugees and economic migrants, uh, in which the refugee is right so the supplicant. Uh, uh, is kind of drained of desire and political agency and only wants admission into an existing order, right? The remedy to refugeehood is admission into the liberal order of the nation state. And so that means the validation of the order of statehood and capital, right? Um, whereas the economic migrant is the more predatory, um, uh, usually male gendered um, figure of the migrant who is driven by desire and uh, who knows that under current conditions, Europe is not going to offer him the kind of dream of fulfillment that he hoped for, and so signifies to a certain degree the kind of possibility of transcendence of that order, or at least the fear of that kind of desire. So what happens in Europe in 2015-16 is that you have the celebration of the refugee who is really compatible with orders of state and capital. And by the way, I should specify that when I'm talking about these things, I'm not talking about people. I'm talking about kind of 
ideological kind of heuristics or concepts in the way that they circulate in the kind of migration imaginary. Um, what you have is this figure of the refugee who is like super compatible with capital so much so that like you have this kind of disjuncture of like an Angela Merkel who is like devastating this like Greek debt colony and like uh, has totally slashed the project of the left that was Syriza, but at the same time is this kind of statue of liberty that is like beckoning the, the kind of tired masses of the refugees, right? And so that, that really kind of brings home this kind of real kindred and the, I don't know, it had not synchronicity, what am I saying, compatibility between humanitarianism, state and capital. Now, the other thing that is like a little bit more perplexing is the fact that the response on the part of the radical left, um, given in figures like, I mean, Sea-Watch um, and also Mediterranean, these are the realities that I know more of, Sea-Watch because I work with them, Mediterranean because it's the, the Italian NGO, is that you witness that the left's response to the so-called the long summer of migration that then shifted to the central Mediterranean was equally humanitarian, right? Was like founding these NGO ships. So, um was in uh, trying to conduct, to build kind of hegemony around the idea of, for instance, like I always use this as an example, Mediterranea as slogan being Restiamo Umani, which means let us stay human. But these people were like veterans of Genova 2001 and their teachers are autonomists and they were like setting fire to shit before. Um, not that that is like, you know, the ideal mode of organizing, but nevertheless, um, their former selves and their teachers would have been very perplexed to hear this slogan uh, as Restiamo Umani. And I think that one of the reasons that they got there and one of the reasons that the left became really so entrenched um, in uh, migrant organizing has to do with um, has a lot to do with a kind of current political impasse. I think that originally, for instance, especially in the 90s and the early 2000s, the left was really obsessed with the figure of the migrant because they represented like this last bastion of like an actual proletarian subject. Um, and so like different enough that uh, it didn't have, uh, the, the figure of the migrant was different enough that it hadn't committed in all of the same sins of the um, the European left of the 90s post Eurosocialism, Eurocommunism, um, but then was similar enough to say that like, okay, but this idea that we have of the worker struggle still kind of perjures. Um, and so I think that that was part of the reason that the left became, especially in Southern Europe, very kind of hooked on uh, the figure of the migrant. The transformation of the figure of the migrant as this kind of ideal figure of mobilization into the refugee um, has something to do with the kind of broader transitions in terms of the role of the left uh, and its relationship to labor um, and the kind of current political conjuncture, which is a kind of resort to a kind of abstraction, um, a kind of sense of uprootedness uh, um, and the kind of quest for a new universal, which is what the refugee has historically kind of signified, right, is the refugee has, at least the intellectual tradition of thinking the refugee is, what does human mean? Mm -hmm. uh, what does universalism mean? So that I think that a lot of the ways in which the theoretical allure of the refugee functions is as a kind of heuristic through which to think the impasse of the previous universalisms of the left. And sometimes that's really, that's great as a political, as a kind of intellectual project, but as a political project, obviously kind of um, comes up against some, some barriers when those universalisms hit the ground and encounter the real people who have to live in those categories. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that was clear. I tried to compress. <laughs> no, absolutely. Um, 
it was actually making me think of a political project, which I um, suspect you may have little interest in, but I'll talk about it anyway, which was the um, EU referendum in the UK and kind of thinking about the pro-EU sentiment, which circulated amongst liberals afterwards. Um, and potentially also thinking about how that comes at a juncture at which in Britain, and I'm going to ask you a bit about the European con uh, like kind of continental context, but um, in which in Britain you have a resurgence of kind of anti-austerity politics and like thinking about the relationship between migration and the question of austerity as like the levers in this kind of juncture of crisis for capital. Um, and so I guess the the, the bizarre thing for me was seeing that, I guess not the, I mean, I have actually seen it in really radical left meetings, but the sense in which Europe as conceived of through the figure of the refugee as saviour, um, that, that project of conceiving of Europe in that way also serves the function of protecting the integrity of the project of Europe itself. Um, and so I was wondering if that mirrors some of the dynamics that you're seeing in, in terms of like continental Europe. Um, and then also just um, more broadly, how this sort of might make us think more critically about the concept of Europe um, in general. I hope that question makes sense. <laughs> that makes total sense. It's really uh, vast, but yeah, I mean, I think that if you are a Greek and you have worked on migration, you know that the EU sucks. Um, and uh, are very perplexed by British people who think that like this is like some kind of like bastion of like you know left progressive whatever though like you're losing um and um I think that yeah that's it's totally right like as I mentioned I think that the the kind of um humanitarian language that surrounded the EU especially in 2015-16 um very much served a kind of legitimated project that was very necessary at a moment where it seems like it was really coming apart at the seams because like Greece was threatening to go out then there was like well then was then um um everything is in crisis and the, there is the interior colonization of Europe. And so actually we're not all one, one big happy family. Right. Um, so I think that that, that is definitely something that is, that is at play. Um, at the same time, I think that that served a big function also in terms of legitimating uh, a kind of centrism, a, a liberal establishment at a moment in which it itself felt that it was kind of under attack, both by the left Syriza, uh, maybe Podemos at a certain point. It's so weird that that was only like six years ago, but it seems like it was an eternity ago that people thought the revolution might happen in the South. Um, but so a kind of feeling of being challenged from the left, but also from the right, obviously. So like the, the kind of king of this in terms of the, the migration issue is Matteo Salvini in Italy. Um, Matteo Salvini in Italy was really, really useful uh, to the Italian establishment, partly because he he became a really great scapegoat. Um, he became a, a, a really easy way in which the Italian center, uh, which passed by far the most draconian and brutal and murderous policies on the border, could position itself as a kind of enlightened alternative to someone like Matteo Salvini, who was like the real kind of villain. He was the actual racist and the real xenophobe. Um, also happen to be Eurosceptic. Uh, usually kind of right, there's this idea that if you're like Eurosceptic, then you must be racist uh, and vice versa. Um, so, so I think that 
that kind of outsourcing that or having someone like Matteo Salvini as a kind of like tourniquet allowed again the establishment, like the most liberal democracies in the world, to pass the most murderous policies, which continue today, like after Matteo Salvini is totally gone and it's a super centrist government, right? It's a technocratic government, actually, um, continue continue today. So I think that that, yeah, that is definitely a play. Um, I think that it masks the degree to which the worst elements of the border, the most horrific elements of the border have been orchestrated by centrist, if not center left forces within government across Europe. Mm. Really? Um, I think that that's a really interesting point in which to bring Justin into the conversation, thinking about the kind of figure of the far right as like a um, something which the center and the center left can organize against or around whilst importing in much of the same kind of regressive rhetoric and thinking in the u.s context about the figure of trump and the idea of concentration camps at the border which become kind of migrant facilities um, um after biden wins the election so um, at this point, I'm going to turn to Justin. Hi, Justin. Welcome and thank you for joining us. Um, and I'm going to start with a kind of broad question again. Um, so in the title of the event, we talk about Fortress uh, America, Fortress US. Um, and I guess the question would be, is that, do you think, an appropriate um, framing to give to the situation as it pertains to migration in America and why? Okay, well, hello, Annie, and uh, hi, Chloe, and thanks to uh, Salvage and Haymarket for inviting me to be part of this. Um, so, yeah, that's a, that's a, a great start-off question. Um, I think um, when we look at the United States, um, it is there is a, a kind of fortress U.S. If we, if we are referring to a, a buildup of a massive, grotesque architecture of repression and control, uh, but but really understanding it as directed towards only a small percentage of people who cross the border. Um, and, you know, this architecture I refer to as the Migra state. Migra is used as a kind of slang term um, by Spanish speakers to, des to describe uh, the Border Patrol, the ICE, all of the Im uh, immigration enforcement uh, apparatus and agencies. But this Migra state is directed uh, almost exclusively towards uh, international workers uh, and migrants and most recently refugees. So the, the phenomenon of border containment and the, the, the and citizenship enclosure, uh, and I agree with Chloe 100% that it's not really about stopping migration um, and you know all the empirical evidence shows that, but it's really about um, controlling and containing and differentiating in terms of who, who gets to cross and then what, what function they have once they're inside the United States. Um, and I would argue that, you know, this idea of border containment and citizenship enclosure, because essentially um, not, is it, not only is it just sort of regulating and enforcing who gets to cross, but it's also more or less closing off who gets access to citizenship through this process. These are not developed in a kind of linear preconceived notion or precon preconceived trajectory. But I, you know, I, I see it as developing commensurate to the increasing role of migrant labor and, and international labor as a, as a growing and, and now becoming a central feature of capital accumulation in the U.S. capitalist system. And what I mean by that is like uh, the way in which this can be leveraged to forcefully suppress wages and working conditions, 
to sort of be used as an ideological wedge to disinvest in social welfare and social, you know, development, um, uh, to find more ways to make workers pay for their own social reproduction, to atomize and weaken working class organization, and a whole host of other measures that essentially work to pass a larger share of the value produced by labor from the working class as a whole to the capitalist class. Um, and so it's also important to point out that, you know, the function of this fortress U.S., um, you know, migrant repression occurs in the context of recurring economic crises in which um, the, 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 that criminalization and exploitation of, of migrant labor uh, and the, the reliance on workers across, um, you know, divided borders becomes more important. You know, uh, it happens with that crisis uh, amidst uh, increasing inter-imperialist tensions and competitions, reordering, you know, global economy, military posturing, trade wars, et cetera. And, uh, the, you know, uh, uh, an attendant crisis of bourgeois politics, um, you know, in which we see, um, you know, um, polarization, political polarization to the left and right. And with that, the mainstream consolidation around the world, you know, including here in the United States, of far right and fascist parties and, and movements or, or within the existing parties. So, um, so I, I, though, you know, I would say that the mechanics and edifice of, of this, of this, this fortress model, which, which I would associate with underlying currents of the way capitalism is developing in the, in, you know, around the world, I would say that this, much of this, uh, model developed, you know, to, you know, um, has, has developed, uh, more acutely in the United States, although we see it playing out in other parts of the world. Um, and, you know, there are, there are sort of things that we can point to that intersect, you know, to, to, to influence the increasing, this increasing role of the Migra state or Fortress USA, the, the free trade agreements and the fallout, the social inequality, the, the economic um, hardship and crises imp impacting formerly colonized, and I would argue now semi-colonized or neo-colonized countries through these free trade agreements, um, through, through the imposition of, of debt and the attendant um, restructuring of economies like Mexico, Haiti, through privatization and, and uh, you know other other uh, restructuring within those economies, and the resulting displacement and and proletarianization of migrant flows out of these countries that serve as you know in effect reserve armies of labor you know for countries like the U.S. for the rich countries in which uh, a lot of migration moves. Um, we can also see the you know the role of the mil military intervention. So the United States is constantly poising itself to support. Um, oppositional, you know, to support governments or or support the repression of oppositional movements, or directly intervene to ensure um, the the maintenance or development of the state apparatus in these countries um, that work hand in hand in glove with U.S. foreign policy. Uh, we also see, you know, again internationally the politics of migration criminalization, the idea of turning, you know, uh, migration into a national security issue. We see this happening around the world. In the United States, this has been Sort of built in for many decades now, and it's and it's only uh, intensified. Um, and of course, you know the expansion of the repressive apparatus of the state. So what that means in the United States is that really, um, since the 1980s, you know, beginning in episodes earlier than that, but really since the 1980s, we've seen a permanent stage of expansion of 
the uh, of the the apparatus of migrant repression, containment, and control. Uh, we've seen uh, since 1994 to 2006 uh, the construction of a, of 600 miles of of reinforced border wall and and other you know infrastructure to to literally seal off large sections of the border, primarily between major cities between the United States and Mexico. Um, and we've seen uh, the expansion of this idea of the virtual wall, the in incorporation of military technology, the border wall itself. The first iteration of the border wall was landing strip um, repurposed from the invasion of Iraq um, in the early 1990s, um, making a wall out of the landing strip. Uh, but, but more recently, we've seen all kinds of military technology being infused into um, policing the border. I live in San Diego, which is near the, the border with Mexico and, and Southern California. And we have, it's a major in, uh, defense industry town. Um, there's a lot of major defense corporations here and a large part of all of their research and development and, and production is geared towards, uh, towards technology to be used in border policing. And we've seen the, the you know, as an example of that, the, the budget for um, all of the agencies associated with policing the border or migration, um, that budget has reached um, $54 billion uh, a year now under uh, Biden, under Biden's first year, which is the same amount as it was in Trump's last year. So we see a continuity there. We see um, not only does the border exist as a, a sort of static phenomenon to, to divide, but the border extends outward, it extends inward. We see the expansion of Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, into every state, into all 50 states, uh, in collaboration with police in, in uh, you know, uh, several dozen states to basically police the interior of the country. Um, we see, as you mentioned, the vast detention complex expanding around the United States that includes, a, you know, uh, the majority being privately run. Um, many black sites that are not even sort of located on a map and you know, and some some public, some state-owned uh, detention facilities, but largely this has been farmed out um, to major corporations, um, you know, that run these for profit. And you know, it continues on. We see uh, a lot of power vested in the hands of employers by the way the the immigration enforcement laws have developed that allow employers, capitalists, owners, managers, etc to be able to sort of wield the power of the state and direct it towards their own employees when they try to organize unions or when they try to um, advocate for, you know, for themselves collectively within the workplace. There's many examples of this, this in the last few years. And extending out, we see U.S. border operations now um, directly operate through Mexico into the Northern Triangle of Central America. We, there's actually um, funding coming from the U.S. state to Mexico, to uh, Guatemala, Salvador, Honduras to partner in creating, uh, really extending the U.S. Um, uh, Fortress USA all the way into Central America. ICE now operates in over 70 countries through primarily through notice transport into the United States, regulating who gets to come into the United States and who doesn't. We see it even entering into the welfare system where there's a wall that keeps um, practically all um, migrants and refugees, whether authorized or non-authorized, from accessing practically every aspect of, so of social welfare, um, and that you know that's another sort of aspect of it. And then lastly, we see the sort of informal nodes of of, uh, uh, of immigration enforcement in the form of far-right organizations that go into the desert and they try to arrest and, and in some cases kill um, people crossing the border. They go into communities 
um, around the country to intimidate um, and, and harass. Um, there's a lot of, of violence that comes, you know, sort of private violence that comes from this sort of public apparatus, you know, in which people, um, you know, engage in attacking and um, you know, harming or trying to intimidate. Um, groups of, of people who, you know, they perceive to be immigrants or refugees. So this is, you know, this is kind of an introduction to what what's happening here under under um, you know Fortress USA in the U.S. And I and so my 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 concluding point would be I think that you know this is really a model from the point of view of of, of capital accumulation and how do you, how to leverage the border as a way to increase um, you know increase capital accumulation and to extract more from you know. Uh, migrant refugee populations. The United States kind of set the standard, and I think it's copied in other parts of the world, but I also think other parts of the world have their own history um, and, and their own trajectories. And so I think that there are different models that we can look at, but we can definitely find commonalities uh, in terms of what's driving, you know, the underlying sort of conditions driving this. Um, but it's important, important to understand these so that we can essentially dismantle them. We can dismantle these apparatus, these, the apparatus of, of migrant repression. Absolutely. Absolutely. There are so many kind of, that was really generative. Thank you, Justin. And there are so many questions that I want to ask. Um, I kind of want to start right back at the beginning where we talk about um, how, where you talked about how the border system in the US is not designed to stop all migration um, and actually curtails a small minority of migrants um, from coming over the border. And so I wanted to kind of um, press about or what specifically then does this legal illegal distinction um um do in american politics what function does it serve yeah so i live in and i live right on the border um between san diego county and tijuana and the border is this border is the most crossed border in the world or at least you know prior to the pandemic it, it, it had been um, and um, there was something like 250 million crossings per year. Um, 99% of those crossings are authorized. 1% isn't. The 1% that isn't is people who can't get legal authorization to cross, who are undocumented, you know, who are essentially undocumented workers. When we talk about um, who gets criminalized and who doesn't, there is, you know, a, a, we're not certain. There's, there's, there's not certainty, but it's an estimated between 11 and 20 million people that exist um, in, in the United States without legal authorization. Um, and this population, for the most part, which con, you know contains international workers, visa overstay, overstayers, refugees, asylum seekers, people coming through um, something called TPS or temporary protected status, basically the, the overwhelming majority of this population are, are, are workers. They, they, they enter into the U.S. through the through um, in, into the economy uh, as workers, and so there has been a, a sort of engineering of immigration policy to close the possibility for for that population to get access to um, to citizenship. And so, when I was saying that, I think policy in effect has been a reflection of of how keeping people without authorization increases the 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 ways in which they can be more exploited, I, I think this has become sort of elaborated, you know, into all kinds of different policies. Um, even the the Biden policy that essentially um, was already shelved, it wasn't it wasn't something that the Democrats have illustrated any interest in fighting for, even though they promised 
to do so. Um, the, the, that policy, even though it's presented as a legalization, required that undocumented people, most undocumented people, work for 10 years before they can even apply for citizenship. So it's like uh, this has been the last several iterations of so-called you know immigration reform. All of them contain essentially work requirements, and so um, so they're kind of like a form of indentured servitude, where for for various years you are required to work, pay taxes, do everything that other workers are required to do, but you cannot have any citizenship benefits. And I think that this is a reflection of how the immigrant repressive apparatus is designed to to keep and curta- you know and to contain and to sort of subdivide out a larger and larger population that that then can be that makes it harder for them to integrate into into the working class politically and socially to to form into unions you know to to even organize amongst themselves to advocate for for you know whatever rights that they feel that they need and deserve um, and so this has really you know created this kind of multi-tiered um, sort of working class inside the United States um, and you know um, I can give an example I think if I have the t- time permits to um, so use the example of Haiti um, and, and the, what's happening right now in terms of uh, how Haitians are being repressed. Um, you know, it's important to, to sort of backtrack a little bit and, and, and to see why people are leaving Haiti or why people have been pushed out, I should say, of Haiti. Um, there's a long history um, of the United States sort of manipulating, imposing maintaining um, a power structure there through direct or indirect military intervention going back, um, you know, to the early 90s to ensure that Haiti uh, maintained a free trade sort of um, uh, sort of free trade relationship with the United States. Um, and, the, you know, Haiti was actually brought into something called the Caribbean, the Caribbean Basin Initiative, which basically was a unilateral initiative by the United States in 1983 um, in, in terms of Haiti to, to require Haiti to open up its economy to U.S. capital export. Um, this actually was introduced under a dictatorship that the U.S. supported called the Duvalier dictatorship, which extended from 1957 to 1986 and um, passed through a family. But the U.S. backed this dictatorship. The dictatorship brought in this sort of free trade, the, the first uh, iterations of this free trade arrangement, um, and it opened up, um, you know, basically Haiti to U.S. foreign capital export, and um, and essentially what that meant was um, so much money was invested into these um, export production facilities, and, and and here in the border we call them maquiladoras. They have you know different names in different regions, but essentially these U.S. In, invests capital in Haiti where unions and the organization, work organization is repressed first under dictatorship, then under succeeding uh, U.S.-backed regimes. Um, and then um, the, the economy has been restructured. You know, uh, Haiti has a GDP, a gross domestic product of, uh, you know, about $14 billion. Um, uh, and it, it now, much of the exports from Haiti have been the result of U.S. capital investing in Primarily one type of industry and turning the island into an export colony for 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 clothes and fabrics and textiles, um, and and so taking advantage of Haitian uh, low wages brings uh, the the cheaply produced product sells them in U.S. markets and internationally for huge profit, um, but wages are kept artificially low, so people are kept 
in poverty under under this arrangement. Um, and then, you know, this has been sort of rep reproduced in other parts of, of, of the region. But essentially, you know, once we combine with the way the economy has been restructured, there's been deindustrialization by foreign capital, local production, productive capacity, such as food production, has been transformed. Um, the ownership has passed to foreign investors and to small groups of Haitian um, uh, capitalists who work in, in league with this. Essentially, we see these changes displacing people and pushing them to migrate, you know, into the United States. So Haiti has 11, uh, roughly 11 million people in the United States since the 1980s. The population of Haitians has reached almost uh, over a million. And, um, you know, we include their descendants, about 2 million people. So there's been a massive shift of people. Only a small number of those people were actually able to get refugee status. Uh, many of them came under temporary protective status after the earthquake of 2010. But under Obama, one of his last acts was to revoke that temporary protective status, increasing, um, you know, leading to people then to, to try to cross, uh, you know, in other ways as refugees, which was closed off. Um, and so many across as undocumented people are trying to get into the country through refugee status. And that's what we see happening in South Texas. Right. So we have a, a, over a million Haitians that work in primarily in low wage economy, uh, the economies in the United States. Many are undocumented. Many can't get citizenship. We see the same process happening, you know, uh, out of Haiti. Currently, the United States criminalizes uh, those Haitians and brutally represses them. So several thousand were were actually rounded up and deported back to Haiti just in the last week alone, about 5,000. Uh, 5, Another couple thousand were pushed back into Mexico and a few thousand were allowed to make their case in a, in a, in a, in a refugee, essentially refugee court. But, but the United States does not, even prior to Trump, did not accept most refugees. It's a very arduous and difficult process. So, so we see all these things interconnected um, in terms of, the, of this recent episode um, affecting Haitians. And I think it illustrates that it's not really about, you know, again, regulating borders. It's not, it's not about um, keeping people out. It's about policing people, repressing, you know, um, you know, creating a structure that's, that ultimately serves um, to maintain sub, subdivisions and, and, and subjugated populations that are more, more exploitable because of their lack of citizenship, um, you know, uh, that plays out for millions of people in this country on a daily basis. Absolutely. And I think that... Kind of place in in context, you know, the situation with Haiti um, and migrants from Haiti. We kind of can think about the Reagan era, which uh, seemed to mount the first kind of crusade against Haitian, um, uh, against uh, Haitian asylum seekers. And I guess then that kind of raises the question of how we think about histories of migration, right? So in the UK, we have this story of post-war, everything was bombed to smithereens. And so the UK um, extends citizenship to Commonwealth citizens, brings them in to work and rebuild the country till today. If you're a second, third generation uh, British um, immigrant, people often ask you if your parents or your grandparents came after the war, right? Um, but people kind of forget preceding that, that the system or the project of empire is one massive and perhaps more effective project of the differentiation of labor. Um, and I guess uh, uh, late, a little later on, I want to ask both of you, both you and Clary about how this relates to concepts of race and ethnicity, but um, the 
project of empire is a project of the spatial management of labor, the differentiation of labor, right? And um, I guess today, because nominally we have the freedom of a post-colonial world in inverted commas, um, people don't uh, necessarily um, see it in that way. Today, we think of it as um, uh, neutral actors kind of passing between borders, which themselves are drawn up by the project of empire, right? Um, and so I guess this kind of leads into a, a question about how um, in the American context, you know, last week we had that image of border guards kind of whipping um, Haitian migrants and pushing them back into Rio Grande. Um, a lot of this talk that we've had in the last week has been from liberals talking about how this is reminiscent of the slave trade. And I was wondering, I know it's kind of a bit of a left field question, um, but if you could speak somewhat to um, potentially how the ground was laid for some of the the migration policies or um, migration containment policies that we see today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Um I'll give a historic answer to that and a more current one. Uh, a historic one is that um, the United States, you know, began as a settler colonial project, um, you know, and expanded westward. And so when we look at the, um, when we look at the, the, the image of the border patrol, the white border patrol agent riding on horseback, you know, sort of, you know, whipping or trying to, you know, arrest or grab um, people fleeing, um, you know, this image could have been painted in the 1870s with, um, you know, essentially Klansmen, Ku Klux Klansmen, or, or what later became known as the Texas Rangers in places like South Texas, who were essentially uh, kind of armed vigilante agents authorized at the state level um, to to push Mexican, you know, after settler colonialism and, and South through Texas to push Native uh, American indigenous peoples off their lands to contain them in, in reservations or in the case of Mexicans to contain them in the uh, racially uh, segregated uh, zones um, and then to enforce that, right? Um, and then we see that the Border Patrol essentially is a, is a kind of iteration, a, a later iteration of these earlier armed agencies that first served as kind of a so, you know, to, to enforce the settler colonial model, um, because they were then copied, you know, for instance, the Texas, the, you know, there's overlap between the Klan and the Texas Rangers, and then there was the Arizona Rangers and the California Rangers. So all along the border, it was these agencies that were essentially designed to push and contain. Um, so it's, it's not, it's not, you know, if you understand that history, it's not um, out of any kind of context of the larger picture of, of you know, these, these people policing um, um, the re- the, these regions and, and determining who gets to stay and who doesn't. But I think in terms of like a more modern context, and especially as this uh, now fits more into the sort of control and containment of, of migrants and refugees and displaced people as labor, as part of the work, working class, in 1986, there was, um, there was a, a very uh, significant piece of legislation passed. In many ways, the last real immigration um, proposal that wasn't just a punitive and, you know, and, and, you know, one that has, you know, since been the trajectory of building up the apparatus of repression. In 1986, this, this immigration legislation called the Immigration Reform and Control Act had two major elements. One was, um, 
a legalization or what what used to be referred to as an amnesty, which was actually, you know, something that was kind of built into immigration policy in the past, where people could legalize their status and, and um, you know, uh, the amnesty was basically a blanket legalization that allowed for about 3 million people to legalize their status. Um, and that, that was one route of this immigration policy. The other route was to now shift um, resources towards reinforcing the border and shift resources towards um, pushing immigrants out of workplaces or at least um, denying them access to equal work. And what I mean by that part was that started the border enforcement policy, it started something called employer sanctions, which sound like employers would be punished if they hired undocumented people. But what it actually meant was employers had the power to turn in their own workers if they wanted to. And so it, it shifted migra- uh, enforcement to the border and to the workplace. And ever, ever since then, we've seen the building up of those apparatus, uh, those apparatuses in terms of more, more border enforcement and more p- power in the employer's hands. Uh, with very minimal uh, consequences for employers for hiring. So in other words, when, when workers organize or, or, or do something the employer doesn't want, or simply the employer wants to reorganize uh, their own workplace, they can, they can call in ICE and they can call in the, the government um, or they can threaten to do so. The amnesty side of it was is very interesting, and I talk about this in my new book, which was it led to a significant surge in unionization. Because people um, who wanted to join unions or form unions now um, did not have the threat of deportation or the threat of arrest uh, being held over them. And it led to this interesting sort of period in U.S. labor history where you had the rise of unionization alongside the rapid decline of it. Um, and so I conclude, you know, as I explain in, in, my, in the book, um, The Border Crossed Us, this was a very, this was a learning experience for the capitalist class in this country. Um, it was, Unfortunately, not a learning experience for the labor, enough of a learning experience for the labor movement. And what I mean by that is um, after millions, you know, literally hundreds of thousands of people flowed into unions in just a few years, um, the, the, um, the, the, we see a, a complete backing away of any kind of amnesty and any iteration of, of legalization that's been proposed ever since. Um, and unfortunately, the labor unions in this country, some of them understood this and, and were able to sort of orient towards recruiting and, and organizing workers. Others, you know, um, others, you know, never, never sort of moved in that direction or, or maintained support for employer sanctions or, or, or the idea of keeping undocumented people out. So that those divisions in the labor movement, you know, have have you know prevented there from being another significant surge in, in organized labor support for us organizing undocumented uh, workers or organizing with immigrants, although we see some flashes of that in the last few years, which I can share later or if we have time. But that, di- that divergence basically reflects where we've come under, uh, under immigration, where it's now it's only been repressive. Now it's only been repression. The, the reform part that we see present, presented by Democrats is to say, well, you can, you can, you can there's, a, there's a, a sort of labor path to citizenship if you work and you Pass, you know, pass the value of your labor, um, you know, uh, for several years um, under conditions of low wages and exploitation. That that's your 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 uh, opens up a, a potential passage to legalization. But even that is not good enough, right? For for um, the opposition to that, you know, and, and the Republican Party, and they simply just did not, you know, squash it every single time it comes up. And the Democrats aren't really willing to fight for it because they're 
completely interconnected into this capitalist system, um, and, in, and in some ways are better managers of it. Um, you know, and so ultimately that's where we're at in terms of how there's there's no path, there's no real path to, to citizenship for most um, working class people anymore. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'll, I'll ask one final question before we bring Clary back into the conversation. Um, so like Europe, America um, is a project which was forged first in the promises of a revolution and then in repression and imperialism um, externalized outwards, right? And it's really interesting to me to see the kind of against the backdrop, especially for the kind of center of American politics against this backdrop, liberal backdrop, the idea of a nation of immigrants, such repressive um, border policies. Um, and so I wanted you to speak um, to two things. Firstly, um, the way that uh, the Democrat Party has mobilized or positioned itself in relation to figures such as Trump on this question of migration and how that um, may or may not have facilitated some of the more technocratical, I know Chloe spoke earlier about um, the border as a technical affair. Um, uh, and then also to how this kind of speaks to the kind of American project as a whole. Um, I know it's a big question, but um, the self-image of um, America as a nation of immigrants, which seems to have matured into somewhat indigenous people. <laughs> On the question of the of the Democrats, I think it's you know uh, important to understand the, the 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 nature and character of the of the sort of bi the the bipartisan political system that we have. Um, the Democratic and Republican Party essentially are um, not political parties. I think in the way many Europeans would understand political parties, or at least perceive political parties with memberships and you know methods for people to sort of like have. Some kind of voice or some kind of way of in, in, informing the direction or opinion within the political parties. I mean, they're essentially um, fundraising mechanisms that are, are heavily wired into the into the capitalist class, into the, the ruling ruling class here. And so, um, you know, they it, it's, you can't disentangle which party has played a bigger role in building up immigrant, you know, the, the repressive apparatus, or you know, for, for that matter. Um, military intervention into the region or any other aspect of how um, the U.S. empire works. Um, it, we can say with certainty, though, that the, the border wall, as we understand it today, began under the majority Democratic control uh, when Bill Clinton was elected office in 1992. Um, much of the infrastructure that I've referred to at the beginning of this presentation began under policies that were either passed under Democrats or with full Democratic Party support in Congress. So there, there, is, a, um, there is an interconnectedness. Um, so by the time we get to Trump, you know, if we actually look at what Trump did, and, and Trump, is, is Trump and Trumpism is a also a grotesque manifestation of, of this political trajectory, um, Trumpism itself, if we separate out the rhetoric, was when it comes to immigration, it was it was a few hundred executive orders that that existed that allowed for him to intensify 
the repressive apparatus that already existed. So like uh, many people say, you know, the, the car was built before Trump, Trump was handed the keys. And you would think that if, uh, you know, like when Joe Biden ran his can ran his for president, the Democrats were like, were, uh, they talked a lot about how we need to um, restore humane, you know, humane immigration policy. We need to get back before Trump, which was not a great place to be. But even even that rhetoric of, of overturning, you know, Trump, Trump accomplished in office really hasn't happened. In fact, it's been institutionalized under Biden. Um, every major policy initiative yeah. under Trump was um, has more or less been kept intact um, and in some cases expanded on. So Trump started the Remain in Mexico policy, which basically closed off a legal op- a legal pathway for refugees um, to come into the uh, country as, uh, seeking asylum. Uh, Trump, you know, essentially his administration pushed that, you know, closed that system and required people to stay outside of the United States, which created these 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 horrid um, open air makeshift camps all along the U.S.-Mexico border on the Mexican side um, that have been, you know, tens of thousands of people have been forced to live in streets and and again these these squalid makeshift camps as a result of that. And then once uh, Biden and Kamala Harris come into office, they, you know, Kamala Harris is sent on this trip to Central America, and her main her main argument was, "Do not come, do not try to come as asylum seekers." So uh, it's essentially saying the same thing in a different way. You know, try to apply through your through your embassy, try to apply, you know, from your home country, and that's that's ridiculous because there's there's no path for that. There's, you know, these these are very prohibitive, exclusive um, ways, and even then, the 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 number of um, you know, the number of slots granted to people coming through this, me- this method are very, very few. So, um, so there's a continuity there. And I know you asked more, more to that question, but I just wanted to illustrate. Um, there's lots of examples of how things have either stayed the same or, or just been built upon. And I think that that's, you know, that, il- that illustrates the political character of immigration repression as something that is not, there is no opposition, you know, to this trajectory in this country. The opposition comes and fits and starts from social movements. Um, you know, that we have seen develop, you know, in response to this. Thank you so much, Justin. I think this is a really good time to kind of bring Chloe back in. And I think that, um, so though I, I do have a few questions that I wanted to kind of put to both of you. We'll start with a question from the audience, actually. So someone in the audience has asked, um, how much collaboration is there between the EU, uh, between the US and EU state agencies? And are they openly sharing repressive techniques and policies? I guess I would add to the question also, I think it's really um, it's really interesting. One theme which emerges in both contexts is the increasing privatization of the border and the role that private companies are playing um, in terms of enforcing the border. I push even further and say, not just in terms of enforcing the border at point of entry, but also in terms of conducting deportations, right? Um, in terms of private companies who are operating charter flights for the British government, the American government, for um, European governments, essentially to deport migrants. Um, and so it seems to me that whilst a lot of these kind of um, strategies of control, essentially the erection of camps, um, the kind of heavy like um, uh, kind of border patrol presence, um, but also the um, way in which, and I think you both kind of spoke to it very briefly, the border also has been implanted in every citizen in a sense in that the role that individuals play 
in terms of like reporting people to ICE um, in the UK context, the kind of statutory duties, the hostile environment policy, and um, essentially the way that um, the kind of strategy of border control, which is seems to be far more holistic, which is like in terms of pitting the legal, and this kind of speaks to what Justin talked about earlier, the legal category against the illegal category and also the refugee against the migrant, the idea that the citizen or um, yeah, the citizen gets to decide which is worthy and not worthy and sets the tone for that and the, the ideological function that that plays. And I think that kind of um, pushes towards a question that I wanted to talk about in terms of the role of privatization. So, Clary, you've kind of spoken about how um, the border is not just a political affair, there's a massive kind of political economy around the border um, itself. And there are people who make a lot of money um from from the border, and I wondered in both contexts if you could speak to the role of private corporate uh, cor- corporations and the profits that they're making in this context. I I guess like very quickly, like um, I'm not um, I'm not a specialist in this, but there are people who are. Um, the, actually, in the UK, the Transnational Institute wrote like a 90 page report of uh, private companies that are invested in the border. And yeah, there is absolutely a kind of like um, there is absolutely a kind of method sharing in terms of technologies of policing and border control, in which a key player is Israel. Um, actually, a lot of like the really kind of the vanguard of the technology, the technological innovation of border control in EU is Israel. Um, so even, for instance, kind of I raised the example of the drones, um, which have now replaced the aircraft uh, that used to conduct surveillance missions in the central Mediterranean. They are the eyes, basically, of the EU uh, as far as EU surveillance at the border is concerned. Um, the um, um, the switch uh, was basically kind of um, carried out through um, Elbit systems and Israeli Airbus Industries and G4S. Right, G4S are like major players, especially also in the camps uh, and sensors and the cameras. Um, Elbit systems in the Israeli airspace industries um, with the aircraft and the kind of surveillance in the sky. Um, and that makes a huge difference, by the way, because um, Whereas before Frontex uh, did pretty much the same thing that we did. It's actually kind of a a big irony of the border regime that we used to take off from the same apron, like literally like three meters apart from each other. So we'd wake up in the morning and go and have coffee at the same bar and then go to the same side of the apron and then share the same toilet roll and then kind of take off um, going in the same direction. And one person, one was there to kind of enforce the border, the other one to challenge it. they were they were also kind of uh, the the kind of human effort that the labor the kind of ethical moral and also physical labor that used to go into the surveillance flights um, ended up being like a really big loophole for people crossing um, so that the the switching to drones which require no kind of manpower and can be active for eighteen hours um, made also kind of really drastically change the border so I think that one thing uh, is to say yes. Um, the EU routinely puts out, um, how do you call bandi, the bids, like when people are like, when the companies make a bid? Yeah. They're tenders. Called- tenders, yes, tenders. Um, so most of that stuff is is public, the, U- the EU commission tenders um, for the surveillance budget. And um, that is part of how the kind of border apparatus expands is through, is through this. And so... That is a huge industry and 
a lot of it is shared, obviously, like there's a lot of sharing and methods between the US and the EU. But I would also stress that a lot of it goes through Israel. Uh, a lot of it is tested on the control and subjugation of the Palestinians before it is exported to Europe and then to the US is usually the order in which it proceeds. The other thing is um, what moved more from the US to Europe, although it happened around the same time, was the fact was the kind of uh, matching of anti-terror and anti-migration and policing um, so that it became... Policing of migration came increasingly under transnational organized crime framework, especially in the U.S. Uh, in the in the EU, it came under the purview of special forces, and so led to like a greater collaboration and involvement of institutions such as Interpol um, in the policing of migration. And there, what I know is that because I used to work on the anti-mafia prosecutor, I still work on the anti-mafia prosecutors who were looking into national crime and trafficking cartels is that they export a lot of their know-how, particularly to Central America. Um, so yeah, that's that's what I know about the the prioritization stuff. Absolutely. And I something you said just then about um the role of Israeli tech companies um, in border innovation and the kind of often invisibilized actors and kind of um, victims of um, these technologies. I think it's really interesting because we haven't really talked so much today about sites of resistance, right? And you mentioned Elbit Systems and in the aftermath of the Israeli onslaught on the Palestinian people, there was such um, inspiring um, uh, solidarity coming out of across the globe. But in particular, there was the occupation of the Albert Systems factory in Birmingham, in Birmingham in the UK. Um, and thinking about the role that Albert Systems as a corporation plays in a whole host of different issues. And this kind of leads me on to a question. Um, but for example, Albert Systems is implicated um, in the Grenfell in the Grenfell fire. Albert Systems is implicated in um, the repression of the Palestinian people. Um, Albert Systems is implicated at the border. Um, and I guess it kind of raises for me a question about how, well, the absence of migration in some of the domestic um, resistance that we're seeing, right? So questions about anti-racism and state violence and questions about policing and securitization, which are going on in the imperial court, seem to completely sidestep this question of migration and how some of the most repressive policing that we're seeing in the imperial court um, is being conducted at the border, um, but also how that ties us in solidarity with all of these um, resistances that are happening globally and the role of these private corpora uh, corporations, not just in the Imperial Corps, but in the colonization, the settler colonization of Palestinian, the Palestinian people and Palestinian land. Um, and I hope that, um, yeah, if we could, maybe if um, either of you or both of you are able to kind of speak to, well, examples of resistance that we're seeing, you know, in the UK, we're also seeing um, border um, deportation resistance, you know, and people coming together to stop deportation flights um, um, uh, in, in their tracks. So I guess if both of you or either of you could speak to um, what are the openings that we're seeing in terms of resistance and potential for resistance and how these kind of this securitization and privatization is connecting struggles. Yeah. 
Yeah, I guess I can go. Um, I just want to really quickly um, add to the excellent points made that um, in terms of privatization, um, in terms of connections between what's happening in the U.S. and Europe, um, you know, a couple a couple observations. One is, um, you know, the United States didn't begin the wall in 1994, but it expanded it. Um, since the early 90s, we've seen wall, walling and bordering off of countries extend to over uh, 70 distinct sites of border bordering between nations across the globe. Most recently in Turkey, we're seeing uh, the construction of walls, um, Belarus, Hungary. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, there, part of it is the sort of outward flow of the mechanisms that, you know, in both in terms of the securitization, you know, learning from each other, but also like the way that this also serves has a cap, you know, a very, a very distinct sort of role in increasing capital accumulation, you know, um, you know, um, and, 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 and being maintaining competitive edge, you know, edges with, with, uh, the United States and other countries that are doing this. I think, you know, there's more to be said about that, but I think that, uh, there are some interconnections, interconnections there on the question of the U S model of, or on the U S you know, the, the region of the, of North America and uh, down to central America and solidarity and resistance. You know, I think this is a very, uh, for, he, for us here, it's a very important discussion because so much of U.S. capitalism has been sort of extended into Mexico, the Caribbean, and Central America through, uh, you know, you, you hear of this, this discussion of supply chain production. So much of it has been extended that much of the economies of, you know, of these region, of these countries in this region are directly linked or connected to or 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 transplanted U.S. capital uh, investments, and so it's created this very interesting phenomenon where not only do we have lots of migrants from these countries working inside the United States across all you know virtually all industries, but we also have workers across borders working in the same sort of production chains, the same assembly lines. Most recently, uh, Amazon opened up a a distribution cent two distribution centers right in the vicinity of where I live in San Diego, Tijuana. They opened a, a multi, you know, they opened up these basically what amounts to multi-billion dollar complexes five miles away from each other across the border. And so the, these two Amazon, what they call fulfillment centers are essentially going to be doing the same exact thing um, uh, in terms of, you know, workers work, you know, in these warehouses, um, arranging products and then just delivering them, distributing them to, to people who buy from Amazon. But the difference is, is that the, the Amazon workers in San Diego make $18 an hour, five miles to the south across the border, they make $1 an hour, essentially doing the same work. There has been efforts to organize Amazon you know, in the United States. They haven't been luck, uh, very successful, but it raises the question of you know, how, how, could you, how could we not have a strategy for organizing workers essentially doing the same work five miles away from each other who are paid a differential of $17 an hour. There are other, many other examples of this. And I'll give one, one real quick. The auto industry has also been subdivided into production tiers from, um, from you know, Canada to Mexico. And in the last two years, we've seen strikes of workers in primarily U.S.-owned production facilities that include auto parts facilities all along the, the Mexican side of the border that produce parts for, that go into GM, Ford, and other cars that are either being assembled in Mexico or in the United States. There were wildcat strikes 
uh, essentially that have kicked off an organizing drive of independent unionism across the maquiladoras. Um, and most recently, there's been efforts to organize um, auto workers who inside production facilities inside Mexico, like at the largest GM plant in Mexico in the state of Guanajuato, recently kicked out a fake union, a what's called a protection union in Mexico that works for the company to keep workers disorganized, successfully kicked out um, kicked out the fake union and are in the process of developing a worker-led rank-and-file union and and fortunately have had some support from the AFL-CIO to basically get their union organized. That raises the question of like, well, if we have GM workers in Mexico and the United States, you know, working, doing the same work, they should be in the same union. They should have the same contract. So the, the, these, these questions are being raised and, and many more around the question of how solidarity needs to extend within and across borders. Thank you so much, Justin. Clary? Uh, yeah, I mean, this is, I don't have a super, I, okay. There's several things that I want to say to this. Um, and I think that first, okay, I, I think that one of the main questions, and I'm saying this in like a super self-critical angle and because like we're all comrades here and I, it's something that, that troubles me is that, and, and this is partly kind of related to, um, a tendency that I see uh, in the European left, which is to kind of fetishize the migrant as this kind of new revolutionary subject, uh, um, is to say that, um, and, and also partly because um, there's still a perhaps more organic link to uh, an old, a more established understanding of labor and how it works and how it relates to organizing and how it relates to demands. So that there is something almost of an anachronism in in some some of the kinds of uh, expectations of radicalism that we bring to migrants, and 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 then at, at the same time that there's a kind of paternalism uh, in the way in which there is also kind of I don't know at least like a, I'm at Columbia right now a kind of academic tendency to like really celebrate anything that like refugees do as like resistance and so radical. Um, so I think that like. I want to kind of introduce this caveat in order to then kind of problematize a little bit of what I'm going to say, which is that, yeah, not all migrants are radical. Um, and that we also kind of one of the premises that we start with is the fact that like most people, most migrants would like to be bourgeois. Um, and and that kind of in and that that kind of dispels a little bit of the kind of allure um, that said the ways in which migrant organizing takes place um, sometimes reflects that kind of bourgeoisness. Sometimes it reflects the fact that people come and import traditions of organizing um, that perhaps are different from the ones that we see in Europe, but that are incredibly effective. So one of the things that we didn't talk about is obviously the refugee camps and the sites of containment. Those sites are also the most organized sites of resistance when it comes to le that level of precarity, because it's where people are together, they're in their same language communities and they have very similar demands. Um, and there, for instance, you really see how there is a kind of um, ideas really spread very quickly among communities and it, it becomes a really effective organizing space. And this, 
Anecdotally, in the case of Lesbos, is the case with the West Africans. Uh, the West African migrant communities were the most um, militant, the most well organized, to the degree that um, the police couldn't deport any West Africans because they were afraid of the fallout that would happen if they tried to do that. And the way that they eventually um, managed. Um, to deal with the problem of the West Africans, it was by basically um, starting uh, a riot and then accusing those people of arson and of assault so that they could then remove basically all of the black people from the camp and put them in prisons in order to break that kind of organizing that happened in the camp that didn't have very much to do with labor, right? Um, then the other ways are... Um, the other kind of the really interesting most recent kind of example that I have is uh, Annie, you mentioned um, during the uh, the most recent assault on Gaza, the kind of international solidarity that happened, um, including the um, the effort of like uh, a collective of dock workers in Livorno and Genova to stop an arms shipment ban for Israel. Right. Um, they organized in the north. Um, one of the things, their slogan was porti, aperti, eh, porti chiusi le armi aperti emigranti, which is close the ports to weapons. Uh, incidentally, weapons belong to the same manufacturers that invest in the border. Um, aperti emigranti, open to migrants. So one of the things that they're doing inside of OSB, which was uh, is like the more radical union in Italy that came out of the logistics sector, which is almost um, exclusively staffed by migrants, uh, um, is trying to create these kinds of, uh, these affiliations, trying to create this kind of solidarity with the migrant workers in the North, uh, um, which is actually very difficult because the truth is that, and you see that when, when, when you work with migrants in the camps and then outside, ironically, it's the camps that are most conducive to migrant organizing, um, as opposed to what happens in the case of Italy, when, for instance, they enter the Bracianti camp, which is the Bracero labor, uh, which is a kind of ghettoized structure that marks kind of the end of your migration journey, because it means that you failed at everything else and you're just about to be deported. And these are like the last dregs that are squeezed out of you. And this is different between the US and the, um, and the EU or the logistics sector where many of the same uh, patterns, the same kind of technologies for the subjugation of labor um, that exist in the uh, day labor and get to in the South were moved North. And mostly that involves um, moving people around every six, every six weeks so that um, people never actually get to form community. They never get to meet each other. They never get to be with the same people for long enough to actually start to organize them and putting together different language groups. Um, so that people can't speak to each other. Like, I mean, literally kind of creating a kind of babble inside of, um, is that how you say it in English? Bab babble, babble, okay, the tower of, anyway. So like creating that inside of the kind of, of the warehouses in order to make sure that the people can communicate. I mean, with really crazy instances of one person who I think was from Eritrea who spoke, who spoke a dialect, who spoke a language that no, no, no single other person, um, could speak so he could communicate with no one. Um, so I think that those are, I think that the migrant organizing um, is um, is something that definitely is kind of developing and becoming more sophisticated. And oh, oh God, sorry, I forgot something really important. Um, there is this like um, Abu Bakr Sumahoro, uh, who's from the Ivory Coast, who was a Brachante day laborer, um, 
who started this movement that became especially dominant during COVID, which was the period in which kind of people were given kind of provisional rights because we needed them to pick our asparagus. Um, and um, so that, that kind of like created this movement, the Invisible, who are like the, the Invisibles, and kind of describes much something that is much more akin to the lumpen proletariat than to the proletariat. And so perhaps of a more kind of traditionally anti-colonial uh, revolutionary subject. Um, and at the helm of this is this one former Bracciante Abu Bakr Sumakoro, who is who was endorsed by Usibbi, the union that I was speaking about in the logistics sector. So he's one example um, of what migrant organizing can do, and then made a very controversial move of saying that he wanted to run for government, which then means a kind of institutionalization into a, and like that becomes transformed into a certain kind of institutionalization. I'm not here to judge. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, that's what I'm thinking about. And then, yeah, I wish that we'd had more time with this because I'm being super kind of honest in my real predicament about the the fact that in the left, we really want to celebrate things that migrants do is this like in the left. I'm speaking about probably like a really small fraction of the left, but there is a kind of celebration of, of migrant organizing as the kind of like radical vanguard, um, uh, a, a kind of mm, um, uh, a difficulty to acknowledge that actually lots of people want to be bourgeois. Um, they are not this radical subject in the sense of like harbingers of an old proletariat or the idea of people who have nothing to lose but just their chains, because migrants really do have a great deal more to lose than just their chains. Um, and whether that idea of migrant resistance in order to be leftist um, has to take as its kind of shell or framework um a particular form of, of, of labor, uh, uh, a kind of maybe more traditional understanding of what labor looks like um, and, and the kind that is unionizable. Anyway, so that's that's an, a non-answer to the really interesting question. It was an amazing answer. Um, thank you so much, Clary and Justin, for joining me today. It's been such an interesting conversation. I've got so much to think with in the coming weeks. Um, so I just wanted to kind of um, let people know subscribers of Salvage should now have received a copy of issue 10. Issue 11 will be coming out very soon. So do go to salvage.zone um, to subscribe to Salvage Journal. Um, this has been such an amazing experience. My first time hosting this alone, and I think it's been um, very exciting. So thank you to both of our speakers, and hopefully we will see you all again soon. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.